Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop update from the 2021 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. We have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 201 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, um, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, India, Nigeria, Singapore, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call. It is a global call, actually, as well. And, um, um, and I think you all understand that our speakers are in the United States and presenting information um, relevant to people in the United States, but obviously helpful to everyone on the call today. Um, and now it's really my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. And Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program Associate Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will address an overview of blood cancers in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on lymphoma, and the role of precision medicine in informing treatment choices. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, for that introduction. So as you mentioned, I will uh, briefly give an overview of COVID-19. At the most recent American Society of Hematology meeting, there were multiple sessions on um, the evolution of our understanding of COVID-19 and vaccinations for COVID-19. And uh, to make a long story short, essentially the uh, conclusion is that everybody with blood cancer should be receiving a vaccination for COVID-19. Um, there are, however, uh, there is, however, an increasing uh, appreciation for the probability that some populations of people with COVID or with uh, blood cancers uh, may not be responding to the vaccine in the same way as people without blood cancers or healthy immune systems. Uh, interestingly, we are learning that they may still derive some benefit, even if they aren't uh, responding in the exact same way, hence the recommendation that everybody should be uh, receiving the vaccination. There are uh, too few or too little data so far regarding the, um, the role of the booster amongst the immunocompromised population, and so I think that's still uh, worthwhile discussing with your doctor. In general, we would recommend both the vaccination and the booster for everybody, but there may be some patients in whom it may, may make more sense to uh, delay the booster until the, the treatment that they may have recently received might have uh, worn off. I think the most interesting um, information regarding COVID-19 to come out over the past month uh, was not related at all to the American Society of Hematology, uh, but just came up right prior to the American Society of Hematology meeting. And that's the approval of an AstraZeneca uh, product that they call uh, Uvosheld. It's a combination of two uh, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that in clinical trials appeared to protect patients who are immune compromised and are likely to respond to the vaccine against developing active infections with COVID-19. So again, this is a uh, not a treatment for COVID-19, but in fact a prevention strategy where patients would receive an injection or two injections once every six months and uh, uh, potentially derive some protection against developing COVID-19. That research was all done in the uh, setting of the Delta variant and prior variants. There are too few data so far on the efficacy of the antibodies against the Omicron variant. Some 
uh, lab data has suggested that the uh, antibodies are effective, while I've seen other lab data that suggest that the antibodies may not be effective against the Omicron variant. Um, so more to come there. The other key issue is that the antibodies are, are so far available, and while well, they're not available anywhere, they've been produced in very limited quantities, will be distributed amongst all of the states, and uh, each state or hospital will be charged with determining uh, who should be receiving it. I have heard uh, estimates that uh, as few as 1,000 doses, for example, may be available in New York State. Obviously, the population of people who might benefit from the antibodies are, is much higher than that. So, you know, we'll have to stay tuned for more information there. So I also uh, wanted to talk about uh, updates in lymphoma uh, based on the American Society of Hematology meeting. There were uh, some really significant updates, some updates that we've been waiting for for literally two, two decades. Uh, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common lymphoma worldwide. Every year in the United States, about 30,000 people are diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And it is a lymphoma where we cure the vast majority of people uh, with the with the lymphoma uh, using standard chemotherapy. However, there is a substantial minority of patients who are not uh, cured with a chemotherapy strategy that we call RCHOP. And for the past 20 years, we've been looking for ways to improve on that RCHOP chemotherapy regimen. Multiple clinical trials have been done, and they have all unfortunately been... Um, uninspiring. This this year, finally, we saw the presentation of a uh, clinical trial that suggests that uh, we can, in fact, do better than RCHOP chemotherapy and may be able to cure more people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma by adding another drug called polituzumab vidotin. It's a special kind of immunotherapy that's been uh, linked to a toxin, so it's kind of like a Trojan horse type approach to killing the lymphoma cells. And when we add that polituzumab vidotin to uh, our CHOP, where we appear to be able to cure roughly in the range of six to seven percent more people than with our CHOP alone. Uh, that's uh, you know, it's brand. That kind of information is brand new. It's going to take a little while to figure out uh, which populations of people are most likely to benefit. But that was. For me, one of the highlights of the meeting, obviously disappointing that there still is a, a substantial minority of people who are not cured, but we, we're finally moving in the right direction after two decades. Uh, the other exciting thing that occurred in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we saw two positive uh, randomized controlled clinical trials regarding the use of a cellular immunotherapy in people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that had come back after prior chemotherapy. Historically, the standard has been to use intensive chemotherapy, and uh, that works, but it doesn't work uh, fabulously. We uh, saw uh, out of three clinical trials, two clinical trials suggesting that skipping chemotherapy and going immediately to these cellular therapies called CAR T-cells or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells can uh, significantly improve the probability of curing the lymphoma, and it can do so without the toxicity of chemotherapy. So that was exciting. Um, when we look at other kinds of lymphoma, uh, another broad category of lymphomas are called indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. These include follicular lymphoma, marginal cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, just to maybe overly simplify things, maybe one of the most exciting developments was uh, uh, an expansion of multiple clinical trials looking at bispecific antibodies. These are uh, immunotherapies that bind not only to tumor cells, but also to T cells that are part of the immune system, and in some ways can work analogously to the CAR T cells. They activate the immune system and, and co-localize that activation in the setting of the tumor. And in, uh, in all of those diseases, we saw... Uh, a substantial activity from these bispecific antibodies. There are numerous bispecific antibodies in development from multiple companies, uh, but very encouraging results. And I suspect that within the next couple of years, we're likely to see uh, these drugs approved for indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Lastly, I'll just quickly mention uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, another um, uh, 
version of lymphoma. And uh, we have, uh, fortunately, for the past um, seven or eight years, had very effective oral therapies for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Those therapies um, were developed to be given indefinitely, and they, when given indefinitely, they can work very well. Uh, it's nice because we don't have to give chemotherapy at all for most patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Unfortunately, the idea of putting somebody on a pill for years and years and years and years is not entirely attractive. They still do have some side effects. Over the past few years, we've seen increasing interest in use of time-limited therapy. And at this uh, ASH meeting, we saw uh, uh, multiple trials, including one large randomized controlled clinical trial that looked at the strategy of uh, de-escalating therapy in patients who were initially treated with an intensive combination of oral uh, uh, therapies. And that strategy also appeared to be attractive. So there's a scenario in the future where somebody could be treated with a combination of oral drugs. And if they achieve a substantial response, which appears to happen in uh, roughly two-thirds of patients, uh, they might be able to entirely stop treatment after a couple of years and currently, with at least two years of follow-up, they appear to uh, do as well as those patients who continue on oral therapy. So they, they get the benefit of a nice uh, drug holiday, and hopefully with more follow-up, we'll see that that can persist for a long time. That's it for me. I look forward to the uh, questions later on. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really outstanding, and, and what a wonderful way to start the program today. Um, putting everything in a context, and also providing all the updates on uh, lymphoma from ASH. So thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myelar Proliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on, on leukemia. Key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, it's a pleasure to join you all today with my esteemed colleagues to talk about updates from ASH, um, disease-specific treatment updates uh, on leukemia. So that's a broad topic to cover, all of leukemia, but I'm going to try to cover several of the major leukemia types give you an update on some of the presentations, or at least the directions research is going in for leukemia. Um, I'm going to start with um, myelodysplasia and AML, or uh, acute myeloid leukemia, which historically, you know, myelodysplasia was a, a disease of some called pre-leukemia, where main, the main problems were um, impaired blood counts, anemia, low white blood cells, low, low platelets, et cetera, where we use treatments such as growth factors, we sometimes have uh, used low doses of chemotherapy. We've seen a nice evolution in that field with the ability of medications to help the bone marrow make blood better, essentially, by blocking some of the inflammation and the things that impair the inefficient erythropoiesis or uh, inefficient myelopoiesis. That would be inefficient red blood cell or just bone marrow um, cell production. When it comes to higher grade forms of myelodysplasia, they are closer to leukemia. And at ASH in 2021, it's clear that there's a, a fairly robust debate going on whether we should be using some of the newer medications we've seen in acute myeloid leukemia, including medications such as venetoclax. Venetoclax is a, an inhibitor of a cancer protein called BCL2, and it has really shown great promise in acute myeloid leukemia. And it definitely can be helpful for patients who have not responded to some forms of treatment uh, called hypomethylating agents with myelodysplasia. And there are a number of studies looking at when and how to use um, hypomethylating agents, and those drugs are azacitidine and decitabine, with venetoclax, um, not only in AML, um, and trying to identify the best patient, identify the best regimen, identify the best markers of success. But in myelodysplasia, I think um, the, the jury is still debating we know we should use it after uh, someone has had some treatment, if they have a more intense or more of a pre-leukemia, a higher risk form of MDS. Um, but we're seeing more movement into even earlier lines. Let's turn to AML next. So acute myeloid leukemia has also seen tremendous advances with 
us moving away from the historic chemotherapy regimen of seven days of a drug called cetirabine and three days of a drug called uh, an anthracycline or donorubicin or idorubicin. We now have, again, tremendous benefit from medications such as the hypomethylating agents, but particularly venetoclax, uh, the BCL2 inhibitor I mentioned. But at ASH, we saw um, some other nice um, reports getting a little bit more specific about leukemia patients. Probably one of the more exciting presentations was about adding an inhibitor of another targeted um, another target protein or cancer protein called IDH, isocitrate dehydrogenase. And um, the IDH target is a known uh, potential uh, targetable area for AML in studies by giving IDH inhibitors by themselves. And these are generally for patients who have AML who may not be able to take standard chemotherapy due to the side effects and the complications. But IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors have really made uh, great advances. Um, but um, we have now had some more updated data in a trial called the AGILE trial, where we're showing by using an IDH1 um, inhibitor for patients with that type of mutation in their leukemia, giving that with azacitidine um, was um, better than giving azacitidine with a, compared to a placebo. Now, everyone gets nervous when you hear the word placebo, but a placebo in this case meant that azacitidine would be a very standard and, you know, a gold standard regimen for someone with um, AML, with an, you know, with or without this mutation, who may not be able to withstand chemotherapy. So the addition of the targeted drug really boosted um, response benefits and outcome and, and long-term success for patients, again, who may not be able to take chemotherapy. Um, so, so that was a nice advance. In, in addition, in, um, in AML, we um, are seeing, again, that ongoing debate about um, venetoclax and how best to use it. So um, stay tuned for more information about clarity there. One last thing to mention would be that now a three-drug regimen using um, an antibody called magrolimab, or an anti-CD47 antibody, which basically, very nicely put, tells the immune system to go ahead and, and attack and, 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 and carry away bad cells in the bone leukemia cells by blocking what's called the don't eat me signal. And this was a, a combination um, of azacitidine, venetoclax, and this antibody. So this now is getting even more power for patients who may have um, AML and may not be fit or not able to, to, to manage the side effects of chemotherapy. And fit means that People are of a typical age and may have side effects um, and complications, which is very common. Um, and we want to make sure we target the right treatment for the right patient and, and not put them through undue side effects or undue wear and tear. Okay, so that's AML. Let me turn to ALL next, and I'll just mention a few things. That um, Probably the, the big splash in ALL was that the antibody called um, inotuzumab, which is a, a, a an antibody connected to a, a a toxin or a um, a um, uh, chemotherapy form of, I guess you'd call it, um, which is um, um, ozogamycin. Um, so, so this is a conjugate antibody toxin, which has been studied in in ALL, and we saw a few studies showing that by using this drug um, with lower intensity chemotherapy in people with ALL who don't have the Philadelphia chromosome that we really can um, lower the chemotherapy burden, again, lowering side effects, harness a targeted drug that's not, that doesn't have the same side effects as chemotherapy and really make some progress in generally older patients, again, where this may be more common, in whom the side effects of chemotherapy may be too great. So you can see the theme here. We're really looking to serve patients better by modifying the regimen to a safer place where side effects may be less of a burden and where patients may be uh, able to steer clear of hospitalizations or, or severe side effects. Um, also in ALL, turning to the other common type, or not so common, but at least well-described well type of ALL with the Philadelphia chromosome, I think we've learned two lessons at ASH 2021. One, that we still need to use some chemotherapy. There was a study, an important study, using um, nolantinib um, for the Philadelphia chromosome-targeted drug, and whether we could skip ARA-C or cytarabine, and 
the end of the end result of the trial was, you know, quote, negative, as you might say, but it really taught us something that, no, we, we still need to use that medication and use it safely in order to maximize the benefit for patients with pH-positive ALL in whom we're trying to really aim for deep remission. But, you know, on the heels of that, also at ASH, we learned that perhaps the non-chemotherapy, as one might call it, combination of panantinib, another TKI targeting the Philadelphia chromosome, um, in, in combination um, with blenitumumab, may really be a non-chemotherapy potential curative approach for people with Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL and, and allow them to perhaps defer or, or um, forego allogeneic stem cell transplant. So a lot of activity in the acute leukemias, and I'm going to end with a few words on CML and then a few words about um, quality of life. So my favorite topic of CML, we, I was able to give a presentation giving an update on a new drug, which was um, excitingly FDA-approved just a few weeks before the ASH meeting called Asiminib, or Skemblex. So this is a different type of B-seriable inhibitor, which targets the mirror pocket of B-seriable and is a tremendous advance in CML, allows patients um, with, who have had two medications or more or who have a certain mutation called a T315I mutation to boost their response rates, get back into remission or into deeper remission. And with a very good safety profile, um, was shown in a randomized trial called the Assemble trial to be better than Basutinib, which is also a good drug. But Asemenib was, was remarkably better, about twice as better when it comes to molecular remissions and um, more people are able to stay on treatment and have less side effects. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention briefly in CML is that we had a very important report from the International CML Foundation about the impact of COVID-19 in patients with CML. And fortunately, we had fairly good news that the rate of, of um, patients passing from COVID-19 was, was relatively low, was low, low in what we might expect close to the general population, although I, I think more research is needed. We were able to discriminate that we need to probably help our brothers and sisters around the world in countries where uh, access to healthcare may be more limited, because that was unfortunately um, areas where the, the risk of complications was higher. And also people with um, active disease, people who weren't in a remission had a bit more trouble. So this is really giving us guidance on how to manage COVID while it's still unfortunately with us um, yeah, around the world. In the last minute or two, I'd like to just um, give a, a, a shout out for the point, um, what questions should you be asking your healthcare team about quality of life concerns? That is one of the most important parts of the discussion. Of course, um, you know, the key discussion between a patient, their family, and their support members, uh, and the healthcare team, whether it's doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, social workers, is to hear about the treatment, the, the roadmap, what will it look like, what can I expect? But we can't forget to talk about quality of life, and it's, it's something we should be brought up in the beginning. What will my day-to-day -day function be like? What kind of physical and um, other um, impacts uh, should I expect? Um, we need to keep um, the person who we're, whose cancer we're treating in the driver's seat because that may be really one of the most important things is, is one's quality of life. It's terrific to have a great cancer response, but only if it's in, in the sense that it, it doesn't um, inappropriately or disproportionately change the quality of life, and hopefully it'll improve the quality of life by treating the cancer better. So the questions to ask would be, again, side effects from treatment, impact on day-to-day -day activities, um, impact on relationships, jobs, work, function, because a lot of planning and a lot of work needs to go in to treatment, and, and quality of life should never be out of the discussion or, or out of the um, um, plane of discussion um, when you're making a decision about treatment. So with that, I'll, I'll stop, and I'll thank you for your attention and pass it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really um, outstanding and a lot of wonderful information. And also um, sort of highlighting, I think, for everyone on the call today, of course, um, their quality of life and, and having those discussions with their healthcare team. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next um, speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. And Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine 
Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on multiple myeloma, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for the introduction and for uh, organizing these events. Uh, they're, they're really, I think, helpful to people. I hope they are. Um, it's always uh, rewarding to talk about new developments in multiple myeloma because um, this is one field of cancer care where we, we see ongoing progress. Um, and, you know, really the, the, the going back... 20 years we see this arc um, and, the, and it's been progress not in the form of uh, a single breakthrough or a single cure for the disease. Unfortunately, we still consider myeloma something that once you have it, you, you're, it's part of your life and you're always going to have it. Um, but we've seen uh, new medicines come along one after the other after the other and, uh, and we've made these incremental gains toward uh, longer lives uh, for our myeloma patients, but also better lives, fewer side effects and, and uh, medicines that, you know, can control the disease without, uh, without causing uh, too many problems. Um, so I, I, I have a just brief list of some of the highlights from the, the most recent meeting. Um, studies that are, uh, you know, bringing the next generation of myeloma drugs um, closer to, to being available. Um, it, it can be bewildering uh, to, to try to get familiar with all these drugs because there's so many out there already. And um, the practice in myeloma has been not just uh, having many different drugs, but having many ways to combine them. We, we mix and match uh, drugs that, that work well together and uh, that creates just a, 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 a such a long list of options that um, that the challenge for myeloma doctors is not to find something to treat someone with, but but it's to choose from because there the, there are so many options and um, that's a good problem to have and we're we're always trying to get better at uh, at picking the right one at the right time. Um, at the, the conference, they uh, uh, announced some updated results from a study called the Griffin Trial um, that's looking at combining uh, four different drugs. For, you know, a, a decade ago, we were using two drugs for myeloma. Then we realized, well, if two work well, why not add a third? And that, was, that, that really uh, improved things uh, for people. And, um, and so now the, the next logical step of that is adding a fourth. So those four drugs are um, bortezomib or Velcade, Revlimid or lenalidomide, uh, and dexamethasone, which is a steroid. That's the standard three that uh, most people with myeloma get initially. Um, but increasingly, we're adding uh, an antibody or an immunotherapy drug to that combination called daratumumab or Darzalex. Um, these uh, immunotherapy drugs uh, are, are pretty well tolerated. They're not poisonous in the way that older chemotherapies were. Um, and uh, so uh, most folks don't really notice any more side effects. Now, it's a, more drugs just means it's a little more cumbersome, um, you know, uh, the, the number of treatments, the number of injections, and so forth. Um, but uh, but I've, I've given this regimen to people and, uh, and the quality of life stays good. People are still able to live a normal life. Um, and so th this study is showing us that um, we can get to deeper levels of response. So, so after a couple of years, um, something like two-thirds of people were still in complete remission um, as opposed to just under half of people who got the more standard treatment. Um, and uh, whether that's worth it, what, the, the trade-off between the extra treatments and the uh, longer remissions, uh, it's still a case-by-case -case decision, and I don't think everybody needs four drugs. What we're trying to find out is who, who really does benefit. Um, 
and uh, I'm when I talk to people, if I feel that they have myeloma that's a little higher risk uh, genetically, or for some reason that that I, I I'm nervous about them um, adding this fourth drug uh, makes sense. Uh, there's a number of uh, treatments that are earlier on, new drugs uh, that that are not yet approved, but that are are you know promising. Um, many people with myeloma have heard of uh, Revlimid and Pomalist. Um, there's a third drug, kind of a cousin drug to those, uh, called Ibertamide, um, and that's showing promise in in people for whom the those other two uh, have have uh, kind of lost their effect. Um, so it just gives us a new generation of, of drugs within that um, space. And there's, these are still early trials, but they, they, uh, they're, they're pointing in, in positive directions. Um, we have a whole new category of, of medicines for myeloma and a few other diseases uh, called bispecific antibodies. This is a an even more um, uh, deliberate way of engaging the body's own immune system to help help in the fight, um, where where you uh, what you have a um, an antibody molecule that attract that's attracted to the cancer cell on one side, but the other side of it attracts immune cells, and so it kind of pairs them up and, and gets the immune shows the the immune cells the, the T cells where the enemy is so that it can attack it, um, it where it would previously um, might miss it because cancer cells are so good at hiding. Um, so the, the most far along uh, drug in this category is called teclistimab, um, and that's, that's showing promise in early studies. Um, about three-quarters of people are responding to that. Uh, then we have uh, uh, the, uh, a treatment that some people have heard of. It's been in the news over the last few years, which is uh, uh, called CAR-T therapy. This is a, a form of immune therapy where we take the patient's own uh, immune cells and actually alter them and, and engineer them so that they're, they're um, uh, now specialized in finding and, and attacking cancer cells. We, we, they, they can put a certain receptor right on the cell so that it knows what it's looking for. Um, the the, the uh, first CAR-T treatments have been now approved by the FDA, so they're available outside of clinical trials. That doesn't mean they're easy to get. Uh, these treatments are qu complicated and they're expensive and, um, and not every center can offer them. So it's not the right uh, choice for everybody with myeloma. It's never the first choice because we have so many other treatments um, that are easier to do. But when other treatments stop working, this is now a, a, a realistic option for some patients. And um, and the, uh, you know, with each each conference that comes along, we see new results uh, from this, and, and those results keep showing uh, 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 longer and longer follow-up times and. Um, and still, still good uh, results for some people. Um, there are a few others, but I, 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 this gets uh, it gets hard to follow all these different medicines and all these different names. So I, I won't go into every um, piece of research that was presented at the meeting. But there, there there's, there's always news in myeloma, and um, many of my patients have had a journey with the disease where as they've gone through um, uh, and, and gotten treatments that worked for them um, and then uh, later needed other treatments, they've, they've been able to, to get new treatments that weren't around when they first started. Um, the, the research is happening, uh, you know, in some, some cases faster than the disease moves and, um, and there's no sign of that slowing down. The drugs just keep coming and, and we, we're learning how to use them. Uh, the final thing I'll touch on, and I, I know I'm uh, over time, is um, 
this whole new world of telemedicine, which uh, has really been one of the few positive things to come out of uh, this pandemic that we've all lived through, um, it, it's now we have the technology and we have the uh, the rules have, have changed such that we can do a lot more um, care uh, over video connections. Um, and that yeah, that can work really well. So um, it, it's a little hard to get used to, the, the sense that, that, that you're really with your doctor and you can really have a, a meaningful conversation um, when it's just a face on a screen. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's good to kind of think ahead to, to know what you want to ask what you're, what's been bothering you, what you're wondering about, things that might not come up natu- might come up naturally when you're in the same room and, and you, you can do a physical exam. Um, you know, you might say, "Oh, well, yeah, it, it, it actually hurts right here uh, when I'm when I'm looking at someone." I might not be able to tell that just if they're a face on a screen. Um, so think about ways to use the video uh, to, to to its its maximum potential. If you have a skin rash. Um, you know, I can see that skin rash if you show it to me, but I won't notice it if you don't. Um, or if you have a, a lump somewhere or a pain somewhere, um, those are things that, that we can try to examine and, and help understand uh, through through video. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I guess that's all the advice I have on that, and um, I'm happy to talk more about the, the, the developments in myeloma treatment, and um, I'll pass it on to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was really um, excellent, really outstanding, and um, covered a lot of things and, um, and really a lot of important information for um, multi-myeloma patients. So I'm sure there'll be questions for you on the call, um, on, the, on the question and answer part of this call shortly. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa, and Dr. Messa is um, Executive Director of Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Mays Family Foundation, Foundation Distinguished Diverse, University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, Mays Cancer Center, and NCI-designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Messa will be addressing disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, and how research improves quality of life for people living with MPNs. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. This American Society of Hematology meeting showed tremendous progress regarding the field of myeloproliferative neoplasms. So when I speak of myeloproliferative neoplasms, this includes patients with polycythemia vera, central thrombocythemia, and myelofibrosis. This is really the key global gathering for people to discuss advances in MPNs on an annual basis with the European Hematology Association meeting and ASCO in the summer providing some additional important updates. So let me update you on several important things. First, there is new information regarding drugs that have just been approved. Very recently, pegylated interferon alpha-2b, or the drug called Besremi, was approved for the therapy of polycythemia vera. And at the ASH meeting, we have further updates regarding that therapy. That therapy is able to be used now for patients with PV, in particular those that have had prior blood clots, are older, or individuals that we really think that controlling the blood counts in addition to the historical way we've treated that disease, such as phlebotomy and aspirin, is helpful. Now this somewhat helps to supersede the medicine that we've historically used in that disease, hydroxyurea. The potential advantages are that it may provide uh, more even control or more complete control of the elevation of the blood counts, but also might help to have a favorable impact in delaying disease progression. There's experimental drugs that were discussed at ASH regarding polycythemia vera, including a new type of drug, one that is looking to uh, create in the body a state that mimics the impact of phlebotomy. This drug called PTG300 or resveratide was tested in a clinical trial with further data presented at ASH showing people are able to become phlebotomy independent in a way that helps to allow iron levels to improve, help to improve symptoms by the improvement of iron levels. 
and hopefully have a benefit in terms of decreasing the likelihood of blood clots or bleeding uh, from polycythemia vera. This therapy might be helpful either alone or in combination with other therapies to control the blood counts, perhaps therapies like ropegylated interferon alpha-2b. There are ongoing clinical trials. This drug is not yet approved. There was significant uh, further understanding regarding how we assess prognosis or risk for patients with MPNs in ET and PV and myelofibrosis. Too many details for us to discuss in this venue, but understand that your doctors are continuing to get more information on the impact that the molecular mutations you might have in the peripheral blood associated with your disease, how your age, blood count, and other individual factors might play a role in predicting how the disease might behave for you. Uh, whether it be with ET or PV, that some or many individuals might live as long as we might expect based on your age, or in myelofibrosis, where we know the disease symptoms can have a risk of, uh, of taking someone's life, but hopefully a risk that will continue to decrease over time. Now, the true cutting edge in MPM therapies typically is starting with myelofibrosis. And the reason for this is that this is the most severe disease and the greatest unmet need. We now have ruxolitinib, which has been approved for 10 years, there's continued data from this ASH meeting. It's a very helpful therapy. It likely has helped to prolong survival, improve spinal megaly, improve symptoms. We have fidratinib that can help to improve spleen and symptoms, may have an impact on disease progression. And again, important additional data being presented in many different studies, some of which I've been involved with, with fidratinib both in the initial treatment of myelofibrosis as well as its use in the second line setting additional information regarding safety, additional information regarding monitoring. For some of the side effects that can occur with that drug, we do monitor vitamin B1 or thiamine levels that sometimes might be de decreased in individuals on that therapy. So important information was presented, but it continues to be a safe and helpful therapy. Next, I would highlight that there are several therapies in development that might be available very soon. These include additional JAK inhibitors. First, pacritinib, which may be helpful for people with low platelet counts. It may be approved in the very near future and helpful for what we refer to as cytopenic myelofibrosis, people with anemia and a low platelet count to improve their spleen and symptoms. Next, with mamalotinib, that is ongoing in clinical trials, helpful to improve anemia. Uh, as well as improve spleen and symptoms for individuals with myelofibrosis. There's a lot of excitement of several drugs with new mechanisms of action that might be helpful either alone or in combination in treating myelofibrosis. We saw data presented with the BET inhibitor, Pelabresib, uh, in combination with patients with ruxolitinib for patients with myelofibrosis, and there is both updates of the data from the clinical trials regarding the effectiveness for spleen symptoms and perhaps some disease modification, as well as uh, posters from laboratory studies showing improvements in the mechanism of action for the drug. Further updates on drugs uh, that are inhibitors of MDM2, a drug from CARTOS, KRT232, that's currently in phase three clinical trials. Further updates on therapies that might help to improve anemia, such as lespatercept and sotatercept, that are drugs that might be used along with, uh, with bruxolidinum for helping with uh, individuals facing anemia. Finally, there is discussion of approaches for people with more aggressive or advanced disease moving closer toward acute leukemia, trying to predict why that might occur with some further insights in molecular mutations such as DUSP6 and how that might perhaps predict more aggressive disease or progression, as well as novel therapies such as hypomethylating agents 
uh, alone or in combination with therapies like venetoclax to improve uh, when that disease has progression. So I hope I leave you with a sense of strong sense of progress, a huge community, a lot of effort, uh, a global effort to try to find better ways of predicting uh, who will develop an MPN, why they progress, new therapies for individuals both with earlier disease and more advanced disease. And I look forward to future opportunities to further update you on progress in MPNs. Thank you. And with that, I'll hand it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was really outstanding and just wonderful updates um, on MPNs. And um, I know there'll be future um, workshops on this uh, topic. And so thank you so much. And um, I'd now like to just update everyone on the services you can access from Cancer Care. And um, so Cancer Care offers uh, free programs and services to people uh, living with all cancers, um, both blood cancers and solid tumors. Um, so everyone on this call, we have all kinds of programs. First of all, we do offer practical and financial assistance, both financial assistance from Cancer Care itself and from uh, rather generous um, amounts from our copay foundation to help with the costs of your treatments. Um, and those particular services are specifically for people in the United States um, in terms of financial assistance. We also um, have a case management unit that will help you to get the services that you need. Um, and so if for some reason we don't have what you need, we will virtually take you to an organization that we think will help you. We'll stay on the line with you until you get the, need, the services that you need. And some of those things have to do with food insecurity issues, with um, all kinds of issues that you may be struggling with right now during the pandemic. Um, so that's another service we offer. Um, we also offer online support groups, and people find those very helpful because they're not time limited. In other words, you can post any time of the day or night. Our oncology social workers do um, uh, moderate those groups, and so um, and we have them on all different types of, of cancers and and uh, blood cancers, and we also have them for all different age groups, for young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults. Um, yeah, you know, um, we have uh, those type of workshops, those online support groups for everyone. We also do offer what we call national programs. They're actually um, support programs, um, again, on many different topics. On uh, We call them our coping circles, and maybe so find those helpful in terms of their coping with their cancer and um, or with their um, blood cancer. And we also um, offer these type of education workshops, about 75 of them per year. And um, we also have a number of publications that you can access. So all of this is available to you um, by either calling our HOPE line at 800-813-4673 or visiting our website www.cancercare.org. And again, at the end of this, well, probably tomorrow, you'll be getting from us um, a survey monkey, um, which will provide you with all of any resources any of us mentioned during today's program. Because for each of these, um, the cancers that were mentioned today, um, there are organizations that specifically help you with those with issues. We also will give you our information as well. Um, but there are a lot of resources out there. Most importantly, we would not want any of you, any one of you, to feel you're alone in coping. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support, and we're here to help you. Now we're going to have questions, and so I'm going to ask Norma to bring our speakers on board. I want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask your question, please press star 1. And a question for Dr. Martin from one of our online participants. Um, if one has developed common variable immune deficiency following treatment for follicular lymphoma, is there any problem with receiving the COVID vaccine if one currently in, is in long-term remission from the NHL? Uh, okay, um, it's, I don't. Uh, common common variable immune deficiency is a um, uh, not an acquired condition per se. It, it is often associated with lymphoma. So it's just a correction there. Some some people who have CVID can develop lymphoma or at increased risk of developing lymphoma. Um, that said, people who have lymphoma 
and uh, undergo prolonged uh, treatments can sometimes develop immunodeficiencies that look similar to CVID. The vaccine is uh, pretty well proven to be safe in all individuals, regardless of underlying conditions. Um, unfortunately, it is also clear that um, people who, in particular, people who have received some sort of anti-B cell therapy, so like the rituximab-type antibodies or oral um, uh, drugs that impair B cell function, appear to have lower rates of producing antibodies to their COVID vaccine. Uh, we, we are seeing some evidence that they may be producing some T cell responses. Uh, those T cell responses theoretically could have some beneficial effect. Uh, hard to quantify that um, because those big randomized studies haven't been done in immunocompromised people. Um, but yes, we would typically recommend the vaccine. However, given the potential that your response to the vaccine might be diminished, the uh, standard response is, you know, get vaccinated, but behave as though you haven't been. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Butler. Is cytokine release syndrome as much of a concern with teslistinib as it is with CAR-T therapies? That's a great question. Um, it's, uh, the early studies of uh, biospecific antibodies talked a lot about cytokine release problems. Uh, then again, the early studies of CAR-T also, uh, that was a, a major barrier, and, and we worried that that was going to really limit how useful they were. Um, and as researchers have got more experience in recognizing a cytokine release syndrome, in, in managing it, in, know, in knowing you know, how to control it, um, it, it has been less of an issue. I would say overall biospecific therapy is, uh, is easier to do than CAR-T and has fewer complications. But I think both of them, uh, the, the complications are now manageable. The most recent um, trial of teclistimab, uh, something like half of people got some uh, symptoms of cytokine release, but not, uh, virtually none of those were considered uh, high-grade or life-threatening complications. These are kind of mild issues that that are that, that we can deal with and get people through, and um, and so I, I don't think these are are should stand in the way of someone who can benefit from either of those treatments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Martin, are there any um, important updates on mantle cell lymphoma from Ash? Yeah, I mentioned it briefly, but not specifically. I think the most exciting data to come out of ASH was a small study looking at a bispecific antibody called glofitimab. Glofitimab uh, targets the anti-CD20 uh, protein on the surface of uh, lymphoma cells and also targets uh, CD3 on the surface of T cells. In this small study presented by Tyson Phillips uh, from Michigan, uh, it was a it was a uh, study performed at multiple institutions, but uh, Dr. Phillips presented it. Um, the majority of patients had received uh, prior therapy with a BTK inhibitor, which is rapidly becoming the standard uh, second-line therapy and may soon be a, a, an initial therapy uh, for people with mental cell lymphoma. The people who have received prior BTK inhibitors uh, often have a lymphoma that can be challenging to treat and uh, in this study with uh, glofitimab, we saw the um, vast majority of patients um, responding to treatment. The study actually had multiple different arms um, looking at different ways to manage glofitimab. Um, essentially, what, what we learned was that a prior or, or an initial dose of obinutuzumab, which is another uh, just a regular anti-CD20 antibody, followed uh, by slowly escalating doses of glufidumab could improve its tolerability and uh, also result in pretty decent response rates. So that, you know, I think it was um, 
it was roughly 80% of patients who participated in that clinical trial responded uh, to glucidumab. The majority of those were actually complete responses. So uh, very nice to see a drug that is both tolerable and works with that degree of activity in a patient population that might otherwise be challenging to treat. So far, it's still uh, too early to comment on how durable those responses are. Um, and there may be a little bit more work to be done. And, you know, glucidumab is something that can be given. I think in that trial was given for something like eight months, but could be given for longer or less time, depending on the response. More work, I think, will have to be done there. Um, also, it's something that can be partnered with other drugs, uh, we believe, relatively easily. And so we may see that and, and could be potentiated by partnership with other drugs we saw a clinical trial partner in glyphodemab with lenalidomide and follicular lymphoma, for example. I think that for me was the most exciting uh, trial in mental cell lymphoma because increasingly we're seeing a number of people with mental cell lymphoma who um, have experienced treatment failure with the BTK inhibitors, and it's nice to have something that has promise in that setting. Excellent. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, for Dr. Butler, um, so what is your view on the question of post-COVID-19 vaccine antibody testing? And there's another question similar to it. Is there any standardization for measurement and reporting for antibody tests? Yeah, these questions come up a lot. And uh, I don't think anyone has a really, you know, 100% solid answer for them. Uh, we're, still, we're all still learning about covid and about the, the vaccinations and, and how the immunity for that works. Um, we know that uh, blood cancer patients, and, and certainly in, in uh, myeloma patients that, that I see a lot of, um, we know they don't make as many antibodies after the vaccine as the average person does. Uh, antibody levels are lower, and, and some people don't make any at all. Um, what we don't know is how much that really matters. Some antibody protection is way better than none at all. So uh, I, I had someone this morning who, who had an antibody number, and it was kind of below the, the median number on those studies, and he asked me what that means. And I, I said, I, don't, I think it means that you have some protection uh, against COVID, but I think you're also still vulnerable, and that's true of all of us. So, you know... It, we we can't get to, we don't we don't have the the knowledge to say exactly what some what any individual person's risk is, um, and uh, and even if we could it wouldn't it wouldn't change the basic fact that um, uh, you know this is this is something that um, is dangerous to everyone. It it is probably a little more dangerous to people who have diseases that affect the immune system or are on treatments that affect the immune system. Um, and that's a reason to, to take the precautions that we can. And, and uh, you know, I, I certainly don't, I don't see any reason or any risk uh, why I would tell a myeloma patient or another blood cancer patient not to get vaccinated. I don't, there's, there are no uh, vaccine complications that we, we know of that are any higher, uh, any more common. In fact, vaccine complications are extremely rare. Um, but we know that even with vaccination, um, it's not 100% guarantee. Um, we saw a, a great American, uh, Colin Powell, um, who, who was, had lived for several years on treatment for myeloma um, and, and was vaccinated for COVID, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately that wasn't enough. Um, so that just underscores that, that we still need to take other precautions even after vaccination, um, you know, try to avoid exposure and, and, uh, and try to have uh, other people who have uh, normal immune systems um, around you uh, be vaccinated. Um, but I, I, do, I wouldn't get hung up on the numbers. And in fact, I don't routinely do uh, uh, antibody testing. Um, I, I say if somebody's had their vaccine, that's great. If they've had a booster, that's even better. Um, they, they should breathe a little easier and they should be, uh, you know, assured that they're, they've done all they can to protect themselves, um, but still use other precautions.
Excellent. And and, and Dr. Um, Martin, do you want to add anything to that? Or Sorry. No, that was a great answer. Excellent. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> a good, great team here. Um, um, as we conclude the program today, I wondered if um, you would each um, just give what you think would be a takeaway for people um, on the call today. So I'll start with you, um, Dr. Martin, in terms of um, what you'd like people to take away um, from this um, program today. Uh, well, with respect to COVID, I think the takeaway is that we're still learning a lot. And uh, unfortunately, every time we learn something, the, the virus continues to mutate and prevent us or present us with new challenges. And so it's important to continue to have conversations with your physicians and tune into the news to look for development, be, be proactive there, and, and unfortunately, um, continue to be uh, cautious. I think this Omicron variant is going to spread extremely rapidly in the United States. Um, within a matter of a couple of weeks in New York, it's likely to be the dominant vaccine um, or dominant strain of uh, uh, virus. With respect to lymphoma, um, I think it's exciting to see where we've gone with CAR T cells in a very short period of time. Um, approved only a, only a couple of years ago in the relapsed refractory setting, already moving into the second line setting in large cell lymphoma. Very exciting there. And essentially demonstrating the power of the immune system. Uh, and, and that translates right over into the bispecific antibodies. I think it's too early to comment whether one approach is going to ultimately be better than another uh, or whether they're complementary. Um, but both of those approaches are really attractive. I think the other exciting thing, as I mentioned in, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, is that you know over the past decade, we went from everybody gets chemotherapy to close to nobody gets chemotherapy and everybody gets an oral drug to uh, now looking like there are going to be some people who may uh, benefit from uh, uh, brief periods of receiving uh, uh, duplicates of oral drugs and then potentially having long treatment-free intervals, which I think will be, you know, uh, really great. Obviously, lots of work to be done there to figure out how to how to use these uh, treatments, but it's it's moving really fast. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and Dr. Butler, um, a takeaway from, from you, your takeaways for people. Uh, well, I I. I got into this uh, kind of work because um, uh, I, I, I'm inherently a hopeful person. Um, I think that we we can um, we can always get better and and make things better. Uh, and these blood diseases, when they were when we first started to try to treat them, we we couldn't do very much, and and we've seen this this just breathtaking history of um, better medicines, uh, better understanding, and and better lives for uh, for people who are unlucky enough to get one of these things, and that is not slowing down. Um, it is, if anything, speeding up. Um, and uh, you know, each each year that goes by, each new conference we go to, um, each each new journal that arrives on my desk, um, there's there's more sort of incremental uh, improvement. And um, and if if you receive a diagnosis of blood cancer today, you you already uh, you know get to. Uh, uh, get some of the benefit from from all those advances that have come before, um, but I'm always interested in the next advance, and uh, and and so you know I, I I tell people just now that you're dealing with this, um, you you have an interest in seeing what what comes down with research, what results come out from studies because um, they can really make a difference. And some people get an opportunity to, to be part of studies and get the, the newest drugs as, as they're being, um, you know, developed and figured out. And, and that can be a, a rewarding thing to do as well. So, um, so uh, we're not done with this, and I'm not sure we ever will be, um, but we, we get better all the time. Well, that's a wonderful phrase to use that we get better all the time, and that really is so important. And I think that um, 
um, we've seen a, an enormous amount of uh, advances in the treatment of, of these cancers, and um, it's been amazing. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, just terrific. Um, so thank you very much um, for your presentations. I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. Now, I know there are many more of you in queue, and we did say this would be a one-hour program. We did go slightly over, and so I do want to acknowledge what do you do if you still have a question? So I also want to, there are three of you, three groups of you, those who asked a question, those who have a question yet to ask, and those of you who had a question that you wanted to ask but didn't get to ask it. We would ask you to each of you take what you've learned today, go back to your treating healthcare team who know you the best, and um, ask your questions of them. We hope your questions will be, you have learned something, you'll be perhaps more confident asking your questions, um, and your your healthcare team knows you well. Your healthcare team consists of many different specialties, and please do ask your questions and keep asking them until you get your, the answers you need um, to feel that you can move on because questions are really important always to ask. Um, there is never a bad question to ask. And if you don't understand something someone said to you in your healthcare team, please ask them to explain it to you. It's okay. It's true for everyone who sees a healthcare team. The, sometimes the words of the names of the drugs are complicated, and so really sit down with your team. Ask for special time. You also can do it as a telehealth, telemedicine appointment if it's really a talking conversation. The other thing I want to remind you of is that um, on today's program, you've learned some information, and we want you then to um, really use that to your best interest as well. However, your healthcare team can customize what you learned today to you. How does it fit for you? Um, so um, we did discuss um, about the uh, COVID and the uh, vaccines and the boosters and really discuss that with your healthcare team. That's very important that you get the most appropriate information from your treating healthcare team. That's most important for you. Um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with blood cancers. I want you to know, know now that you're part of a very large community of support. Lots of organizations out there, nonprofit organizations, your healthcare team, and tomorrow you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation, which we appreciate you're completing that, that as well, but that SurveyMonkey evaluation will also include resources that we may have mentioned on today's program today with the websites and the uh, telephone numbers and all those kinds of things so that you can use those and so that you can get the information you need. For our international participants, for those of you who prefer websites, we will give you those website addresses as well, so you'll have that. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.